Thank you, John. Uh, Dave Robinson, come on up. Dave's going to read for me this morning. How's everyone doing? Great. It's the third Sunday of Lent. You've made it this far. Uh, we are looking at different texts in what is called the lectionary, uh, which assigns four different texts uh, per, well, per day, really, but uh, each Sunday has four different texts. And was, one of, it was the psalm you read from the lectionary? Yeah, that was from the lectionary. Uh, and then I'm going to hit on two of the other texts, Luke 13, and we'll look at Isaiah 55 near the end. So before we dive into these texts this morning, let's say a word of prayer. God, thank you so much for your deep, deep love for us. God, uh, reveal to us more and more that our deepest longings are found in you. I pray this morning that you would reveal more of yourself to us, that we would know your love more deeply. In the name of Jesus, everyone said, amen. amen. All right, so we're going to jump right in. Luke 13, Brother Dave. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Okay, so uh, this is a really interesting historical note here. Um, apparently, Pilate had killed a bunch of Galileans in the temple. And the blood of the Galileans mixed with the blood of the temple sacrifices. So it just would have been abhorrent to begin with that Pilate killed these Galileans, uh, but let alone in the temple, which uh, in the Jewish mindset would have profaned the temple space. Now, Pilate was like uh, Caesar's enforcer in Jerusalem. So you had Herod, who was kind of the puppet king over Israel, uh, but Pilate was the real enforcer for Caesar. And so Part of Pilate's job in Jerusalem was to make sure that no revolutionaries came against Rome. And so there were people like Pilate all over the known Roman world. And so when Pilate sees these Galileans come and he thinks that they're revolutionaries and maybe they were revolutionaries, he, he's like, we're putting a stop to this immediately. And so he has these Galileans killed. And the, the big question for the Jewish people here is, what, what's going on? Like, how could this happen? And uh, did they do something worse than the rest of us? Are they worse sinners than the rest of us? And so Jesus engages this question on their minds. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no. But Unless you repent, you too will all perish. Okay, so Jesus is saying no. They're not worth sinners. He refuses to engage this, uh, this idea uh, that was really prominent in the first century that you get what you deserve or they had it coming to them. Uh, now, I'm so glad we've all evolved way beyond that. We would never say anything like that in our day. But if you can just imagine in that day th this mindset people get what they deserve, or they had it coming to them, or they, they must have been worse people than we are because they got killed. And uh, Jesus refuses to engage this, and he, he, he's saying, you need to repent from that kind of mindset, and you need to repent from this idea of where you find your security. That For Jesus, he knows his only security is in God the Father. 
and this relationship that they have in this beautiful, mysterious, triune, self-giving love of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and that we are invited into that kind of security. For Jesus, he didn't find his security in uh, cozying up to the religious elite of the day, the chief priests. He didn't find his security in cozying up to Pilate, the political elite of the day. And it's interesting that it is these two groups of people, the religious elite and the political elite, the chief priests and Pilate, who ultimately would be the decision makers on sending Jesus to the cross. So Jesus is countering this idea of you get what you deserve. If anyone didn't deserve to die, it was Jesus. And he ends up being crucified on a cross. Uh, Then another story emerges. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Okay, so this is like Jesus on... uh, ancient horror stories. Uh, He's addressing this issue that happened in the temple. He's addressing this issue of the Tower of Siloam that fell and crushed a bunch of people, 18 of whom died. And the the big question on people's minds are, what did they do to deserve this? They must have been worse people, right? And, And Jesus refuses to engage that kind of thinking. It would be like us saying the people who were affected by the fires or by 9-11 or by shootings or people who get cancer. They, they must be worse people than everyone else. And Jesus says, no, don't go there. Uh, he also doesn't give good answers for why these types of horrific things happen. And maybe that's because there are no good answers. Uh, a part of human life is suffering. And we just recognize that. And we don't have good answers for why these kinds of things happen. But what Jesus refuses to do is to say, you get what you deserve. They had it coming to them. He refuses to go there. And he invites us to not go there either. Then he jumps into this interesting little parable that he tells. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, I'll cut it down. Okay, this is uh, an interesting parable. There's an owner of the vineyard, and there's this fig tree in the vineyard, and it hasn't produced fruit. So he says to the gardener, cut it down. And the gardener uh, has a rebuttal and says, no, no, let, let me fertilize it. Let me take care of it. Let me tend to it for another year. And then if it doesn't produce fruit, cut it down. Uh, So when I was a younger man, uh, way back, my later years of college, uh, 
is when I really became a passionate, committed Jesus follower. Those were the years that uh, I shifted from one way of living to choosing to live the way of Jesus. Uh, and I had a mentor uh, who invested in my life in really significant ways, an amazing man, and he said to me, Matt, you, you need to be investing in other people's lives as well. The way I'm investing in your life, I want to see you investing in other people's lives. So I started uh, investing in some younger college students and mentoring them. And one of them, his name was Tim. And Tim was, at this stage in Tim's life, he was really struggling. Uh, he was making a lot of really poor decisions, hanging out with the wrong people, doing the wrong things. And I was struggling with, how, how do I best come alongside Tim? How do I best help Tim? And so I went to my mentor and asked his advice. And he was asking me some questions. How long have you been meeting with Tim? How long has he been making these poor choices? Uh, does it seem like he has any desire to change? And at the end of the conversation, my mentor kind of said, you know, Matt, it's up to you. But if I were you, I think I would just, I would let Tim go. Like, don't. Don't waste your time. It sounds like he just keeps making poor choices. So just let him go his own way. And I really struggled with that. And then I happened, happened uh, to read this story, this parable. And it, it changed everything for me. I was like, oh my goodness, I love my mentor. I respect my mentor. But I can't let Tim go. Like Just like the gardener, I, I want to keep fertilizing. I want to keep investing in him in hopes that something happens. And by God's grace, I, with joy, I can tell you that a few months later, Tim had a massive turnaround. He ended up working at a youth center for troubled youth where he became a counselor, counseling those who were making some of the same poor decisions he had been making. Uh, and God used these poor decisions in Tim's life changed his life and used him to invest in other teens who were making poor decisions. Uh, and it's a, a beautiful, fantastic story. Um, when we look at this story, I think there's a number of ways to look at it and interpret it. Uh, the traditional interpretation is that the owner of the vineyard is God the Father. And the gardener is God the Son, Jesus. And, and, and the father comes and says, this fig tree isn't producing fruit, cut it down. And the son intercedes on behalf of this fig tree and says, let me fertilize it. Let me see if it produces fruit. Let it be. This, this uh, phrase, next slide, leave it alone, is the Greek word aphis, which means to permit, forgive, or pardon. So the gardener says, forgive it. Pardon it. Let me fertilize it. Let me work on it for one more year. And then if it doesn't produce fruit, cut it down. It's the same word Jesus uses to the Father on the cross. Jesus says, Father, forgive, aphis them, for they do not know what they are doing. It's an interesting relationship in, in some of these stories and texts between father and son. Because Jesus, God in the flesh, Jesus came to show us what God looks like with skin on. And Jesus knows uh, the weakness of humanity. And even on the cross, Jesus says about those who have beaten him and nailed him to a cross, he says, Father, forget, he's interceding on their behalf. 
Father, forgive them. And so when in this parable uh, we see this text of God, if it is, if the owner is representative of God saying, cut down the fig tree, what we have is Jesus interceding and saying, forgive, let it be, forgive. Uh, What's interesting at the end of this text, the NIV says, if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Who? Who's going to cut it down? What the NIV does, they took out a word of the original Greek. I want to show you what the original Greek says. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So Jesus is saying, I'm not going to do it. If you want to, go ahead, God. But I'm not going to cut the tree down. Uh, It's as if God doesn't want to cut, the Father doesn't want to cut it down either. He's seen if the Son will. And the son's saying, I'm not going to do it. You can do it. Uh, It reminds me of this beautiful text in the book of Hosea, where God is speaking through the prophet Hosea, and God is speaking as a parent to his children. And he says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. So this is is God speaking to his children and saying, I tended you. You're my children. I love you. And you just keep walking away from me. This is God's heart just breaking over his children, walking away. And so something shifts in God and God moves, I think, from some sadness to a little bit of anger, it seems. He says, will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? So he said, I'm just going to hand them over to other nations. A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God most high, I will by no means exalt them. So it's like this this shift from tender love to I'm, I'm done. But that lasts only a moment because there's an immediate shift back. Notice this. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you this way? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger. My heart is changed within me. At at God's core, God's heart is compassion, forgiveness, and love. And God will keep chasing us down. And so in this parable, this interesting interchange between owner of the vineyard and uh, gardener of the vineyard, gardener interceding on behalf of the fig tree, Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them, interceding. Uh, Paul takes it a little further in Romans 8. Next slide. Paul says this. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. If you ever feel like God's heart towards you is condemnation, 
it is not. Who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. This same Jesus who interceded on the cross on behalf of those killing him, this same gardener interceding with the owner uh, for the fig tree, is the same Jesus interceding for you and for me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Next slide. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, nothing, nothing can separate us. Like, let's say that together. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Uh, we can read it. We can even intellectually assent to it. But God's heart and deep longing and desire is that you would truly believe it. Deep in your heart. Deep in your soul that it would become a part of you, that you would know, not just intellectually, that you would experientially know deep in your bones, you are loved, you are loved, and nothing can separate you from that love. Nothing. Nothing can separate you from that love. So, given this interchange between Jesus and the Father. Uh, it reminded me of this quote by Robert Perar Capon. God the Father is lucky to have such a lovable son. He does not come, that, that's funny actually. Uh, he does not come to see if we are good. He comes to disturb the caked conventions by which we pretend to be good. He comes only to forgive for free, for nothing. We are saved gratis by grace. We do nothing and we deserve nothing. It is all absolutely and without qualification one huge, hilarious gift. Love, grace, forgiveness, uh, freely offered to us every moment, every day, uh, which leads me to Isaiah 55. What, what is this fertilizer? What is this nourishment that is provided to us? Let's look at Isaiah 55. Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen, that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. Okay. Uh, God is saying through the prophet Isaiah here, 
This is, in the original context, this is to a group of people who are in exile in Babylon. And the easy thing to do would be to just assimilate to Babylonian culture. And it, it looks good. It's alluring, but it will cost them something. It won't just cost them their money. It, it will cost them their souls. And God is coming to them in love, saying, no, 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 come to me. Come back to me. Because the water I have to offer, it's free, and it'll truly satisfy. Why, why buy that which does not satisfy? Why work yourself to death for no satisfaction? Why keep running the rat race? Why keep engaging the way of the empire when everything I have to offer is free gift? Water, no money. Food, no money. Wine, no money. It's like a free grocery store. Just come on in and be with me and allow me to fertilize you. Allow me to feed you. This is the invitation to truly turn from that which we are deceived into believing will satisfy us and towards that which can only and truly satisfy. That the, every longing and desire we have that is broken or marred, when it is made right, we find those longings and desires, their fulfillment found in God, in the living Christ, in our midst. Uh, this is the invitation from God to us. Um, reminds me of uh, these signs that you see in the Grand Canyon. Caution, down is optional, up is mandatory. Uh, they have to have these all over the place because so many people that go hiking are used to usually going up first. You get the hard part out of the way, and then you go down, but not in the Grand Canyon, right? As far down as you go, you got to go that far back up. And what we can't see as clearly are the, the other warnings, like eat and drink. Next slide. Uh, stop, drink water. You are thirsty whether you realize it or not. How is it that so often we go through life spiritually dehydrated and don't realize it? God is wooing us back, inviting us to drink from him. It reminds me of Jesus sitting with a Samaritan woman at the well who came to draw water. And Jesus says to her, I have water that will make you never thirst again. True living water from the Spirit of God. This is the invitation to eat and drink this spiritual nourishment that we are starving for, that we are parched for from the living God. Uh, this morning, as we come and take the bread and dip it in the cup, this is a beautiful picture of spiritual nourishment from God. My deep prayer is that as we take the bread and dip it in the cup, God will wake us up to his presence right here with us and feed us and nourish us and that we will feel satisfied that we will leave behind the things that don't bring satisfaction, 
and truly engage the things of God that bring satisfaction. Wherever you find yourself this morning, whatever you are wrestling with, whatever anger or loneliness or despair or depression or, or anxiety or addictions, may you know this deep, deep love of God that says nothing, none of those things can separate you from my love. God, thank you that you are a God of love. God, may we know deep in our bones that nothing can separate us from your love. Fill us up with your love this morning and allow us to live that love with each person we encounter. As we come and take the bread and dip it in the cup, may we know you are feeding us. May we be filled with you. May we be present to you as you are already present to us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As you go, may you know that overwhelming, reckless love of God. May you know that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. May you live out that love this week, wherever you find yourself. And may the grace and peace of Christ be with you now and always. Amen. Go in peace.